I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible. Um, indeed, this church has a history of sermon series on the book of Revelation. Um, Dr. Hendrickson, who was the pastor here in, I think, the late 50s and the early 60s, uh, wrote the best-selling English-language commentary in the book of Revelation at the time. And uh, his, his picture downstairs is the one that isn't just a headshot. He's at the pulpit preaching. Um, I understand he did that a lot. So um, Revelation chapter 2. Um, we started with Revelation 1 last week. We look at Revelation 2. We're actually going to be looking at all of chapters 2 and 3, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Um, these two chapters are seven letters to seven particular churches that John had relationships with. Uh, John's the who's writing this. Um, we're just going to read the one letter, and then because uh, they're all kind of pretty similar in pattern. So, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet... I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. So, a few times in my life I've gone to one of these uh, Christian conferences. You know what I'm talking about? It's like uh, like an, an arena, a couple thousand people. Uh, the worship team is some band that you can hear on the radio. And uh, like the, the teaching is some famous author who's like insightful and clever and, and they have you laughing and then they have you crying, right? And, and all the people that you meet at the conference, uh, they're all like super interesting and inspiring and they talk about important things. And so you leave that conference on like Wednesday, right? You're, you're pumped, you're, you're ready to go into the world for Jesus. But then Sunday morning happens and you go to your own church. And I'll tell you, there's often nothing that kills that conference high quite so fast as a Sunday morning in your own church. Where the worship was, well, you know, I mean, not really my style, but I'm sure somebody liked it. And, and the teaching was, you know, it had its moments. I think, you know, the the pastor really seemed to try on that one. And the people you interact with on a Sunday morning, I mean, right, you're all excited, right? You want to talk about deep, important things about your faith, but instead, Larry tells you the same story about he's got water in his basement, same story he told you last week, 
It was exactly as interesting the second time as it was the first. And of course, Judy is still mad at Billy for reasons that nobody really remembers anymore, but it's making everybody's coffee time awkward. Meanwhile, you're reading the bulletin that we're behind on the budget. Not enough people to serve on council. Oh, and did I mention the ceiling is caving in? Right? It's like, woo, church is awesome. Nothing really messes up uh, an exhilarating spiritual high quite so quickly as a Sunday morning in your own church. You know those people who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm I'm not really into that church thing. For good reason, right? I mean, um, I love this from Eugene Peterson. He's this pastor, and he wrote a terrific little book on Revelation. I'm not saying it's better than Dr. Hendrickson's. I'm just saying it's a good book on Revelation. And, and he, said, uh, he said, we come to church expecting a disciplined army of committed men and women who will courageously lay siege to the powers of this world. And instead, we find people who are really worried about the crabgrass in their lawn. Right? Compared to even the most mediocre conference, a real church can look pretty shabby. And I bring this up because the book of Revelation, in some ways, is showing us the greatest Christian conference in history. John gets sort of plucked up out of his ordinary routine on the island of Patmos. He is whisked away to witness this otherworldly show. And and if you think the worship at the conference is good, oh man. The arena with a couple thousand people, you know, and the band and the smoke machine. Like Revelation describes worship with hundreds of thousands. And and they're they're not in some minor league basketball arena, right? They're They're in heaven, and they're led not by some second-rate Christian band from the radio, but they're led by these 24 elders and 24 thrones with lightning and thunder coming out of their thrones and God himself in the center of it all. Right? John is shown like vision after vision of God's saving work through history. Right? So this book is just jam-packed full of these cosmic battles and, and these epic confrontations between good and evil. All the while, there's more thrilling worship until this dramatic arrival of heaven on earth. I mean, if you like these Christian conferences, John says in Revelation, you haven't seen anything yet. Revelation shows us the spiritual high to beat all spiritual highs. There are, there are no mountaintops in the Christian life that are more exhilarating than what Revelation shows us. Which is precisely why chapters 2 and 3 seem so out of place. In chapter 1, we looked at it last week, God shows up with a bang, right? Jesus appears as one like a son of man, John says. And and the sight of Jesus and all of his brilliance and glory is so dramatic that John falls on his face as though he's dead. If you jump ahead to chapters 4 and 5, we get our first glimpse of this epic worship in heaven. And there's crowds and creatures and there's angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. All of creation, all heaven and earth, join in singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come over and over and over again. Chapters 1, 4, and 5 make you want to fall on your face in awe and praise. But in between, we get chapters 2 and 3, and their effect is not quite the same. 
Seven little letters to seven little churches. And in these letters, there's good and there's bad. Uh, So John says that Ephesus, church in Ephesus, has been doing good about keeping false teachers away. And uh, the church in Smyrna has done a nice job resisting persecution. Thyatira is doing okay, putting their faith into action. But then, in almost every letter, John names some of the problems. So verse 2, verse 14, the, the church in Pergamum is tolerating idol worship and false teaching. In 2.20, the church in Thyatira, they're doing basically the same thing. There's like a false prophet stirring things up. There are problems in these churches, uh, which isn't necessarily, of course, a deal breaker. And I was thinking, I'm a, so I'm a millennial, and uh, we millennials, we value authenticity. Okay? Um, so actually, reading about churches with problems, um, we actually think that's kind of cool as millennials, right? We, we're kind of skeptical of like the really put-together church, right, where everything's polished. We, we're, we're all like, you know, give me messy people in my church, right? Dealing with addictions, prostitution, the guy coming out of jail, like, let's be real, right? We, we millennials, we think a church with problems, that's, that's kind of cool. The only trouble is that, that the problems with most of these churches in Revelation, they're not the sexy kind. Like uh, chapter 2, verse 4, to the Ephesians, you have forsaken your first love. In other words, like the passion's gone. It, it's not like they did something as dramatic as like declare that they're against God or something. That their faith is just kind of meh. Right? Or like 3 verse 2 to Sardis. You know, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says in this letter that they have this reputation for doing good things. But John's like, I don't know guys, it's kind of lifeless. It looks to me like you're just going through the motions. Right? Or maybe, maybe the granddaddy of all unsexy church problems, Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of these. <laughs> I mean, what's the problem with these churches? Some of them are just, they're just kind of muddling along. It's like they can't even sin in interesting ways. And, and the contrast with the, with the kind of high drama of the rest of the book is kind of jarring. Right? So the book of Revelation shows us like the potential of God on the move, right? of a fully alive church where the stakes are high. Right? It's love and sacrifice and life and death and heaven and hell. Right? But these letters sort of give us this window into the the much less spectacular, kind of day-to-day, week-to-week reality of real congregations. Now, to be fair, it's not that these churches don't have a spark. You know, um, We read that they've endured persecution. They've, they've loved sacrificially. They've, they've broken down barriers between people groups. They've resisted compromise with the world. I mean, these are beautiful things for any church. By the way, these are things that I've seen in, and, and loved in you guys here at Creston, too. There, there's a spark in these churches. 
But then in each of these letters, there's that warning. He gives these warnings in each of these letters. And, and the warning reminds us, oh yeah, church. Like despite, despite having been like supernaturally created, we're reminded that the church can be this kind of muddling, inconsistent, a kind of infuriatingly ordinary thing. I mean, I think this is really what bugs us when we, when we get back from these conferences, right? We've seen some of the potential of like a fully alive Christian, right? Um, but then we show up at church and we're reminded like what a, what a mix church is, right? Of good and bad, right? There's people who are fully alive and there's people who are half asleep, right? In any church, there's going to be people whose faith is kind of on cruise control, who feel like stuck in a rut, who are busy, who are bored. Real churches can be kind of a drag. And it makes you wonder, like, wouldn't we be better off without him? Like, wouldn't Revelation be so much more interesting as a book if you just cut chapters 2 and 3 out? Give me more of, like, the thunder and lightning of God on his throne and less of, like, the apathy and indifference of the Laodiceans. I mean, seriously, like, if you, if you have even, like, a lousy smartphone, you can get Spotify, podcasts, YouTube. You can get way better music and way better teaching than you will ever get at Creston Church. And, and you don't have to deal with, like, Judy's complaints about Billy. You don't have to hear Larry tell the same story for a third week in a row. No one will ever ask you to give up your Saturday to help move scaffolding to fix the ceiling, Right? Why does John break up like the spiritual thrill of the book of Revelation to address these, I don't know, kind of mundane problems of these little churches? Well, I think if you've read the Bible before this book, my guess is that this detour to the church didn't surprise you. Um, in fact, it probably didn't even feel like a detour. Because, see, the, the Bible, from start all the way here to finish, the Bible is always very skeptical of, of anyone who wants to live their faith solo, like outside of a community. The Bible is constantly addressing just these kinds of issues, like how to get along with difficult people, how to compromise, how to be faithful, like for the long haul. And it's always addressing it with a kind of urgency, right? John says, repent, turn, change. Like he, He's threatening them in these letters. Like It's like figuring out how to get along with people at church is not a sideshow to the Christian faith. It's kind of part of the main idea. Right? The idea of being a Christian on your own, the idea of being a Christian without a church, it doesn't even really make sense if you read the Bible. You know, Andrew, he's teaching on the Lord's Prayer, right? He's teaching the kids the Lord's Prayer before they go down. Um, how, does it, how does it start? Is it, uh, is it my Father in heaven? Right? It's, it's our Father in heaven, right? The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, you can't even pray it right if you're praying by yourself, right? Genesis 2, right at the very beginning of the Bible, it is not good for man to be alone. 
Genesis 22, God is making these promises to Abraham, right? Uh, I will make your descendants like the sand on the seashore. Did he know how annoying the sand could be? Hebrews 10, do not give up the habit of meeting together. Galatians 6, bear with one another's burdens. Again and again and again, God says, you can't follow me alone. There's no such thing as being a private Christian. Now, do you think God didn't realize how boring Larry's stories could be? I mean, do you think he didn't realize like, how petty the arguments between Judy and Billy would be? No, the church is not an accident. Like, this isn't like a good idea that like, got away from God. Like, the church is God's crown. It's his jewel. The Bible says the church is his bride. And if you look at these letters, look, each letter has the same thing. It's, it's what first defines these churches, and it's not their problems. Like Ephesus, uh, the, book, the, the letter to Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Or for Smyrna, 2, verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Or for Pergamum, which is 2.12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You, you recognize those? It's from last week, right? When we talked about this, this crazy image of like the glorious epic Jesus standing before John. These are all descriptions of Christ. That's who's addressing these churches. The same Christ, the, the vision of Jesus that made John fell over dead, half dead on his face, that same Jesus would like some time to talk with his churches. The, the cosmic, epic God of the universe with stars in his hands and a sword in his mouth, that same God cares enough about these churches to address them right where they're at. Every one of them even when what he's addressing is not that sexy or interesting. God cares. The God of the universe who's battling the forces of evil, that God cares about the, the dip in passion in your faith. That God cares about the way you're, you're just kind of getting annoyed with that person at church. And he says, pay attention to that. That matters to me. And then look at the end of each of the letters. So each of the letters ends the same way too. So they each end with a, a promise for the ones who persevere through the persecution they're going through. He calls them the ones who overcome. So 2 verse 7, to the Ephesians, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Or 3 verse 5, to Sardis, the one who overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name from the book of life. Or 321 to Laodicea, to the ones who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. So all seven of the promises at the end of these letters, they are all direct references to images at the end of this book of Revelation. So at the end of this book, chapters 21 and 22, um, easily the, the most beautiful thing in the book, probably the most beautiful thing in the whole Bible, the last two chapters of Revelation. It's, it's this picture of, of like heaven and earth being reunited. Um, it, it's basically, it's, it's our clearest picture of our eternal home. Um, all the nations are gathered there. 
There's these trees that have these leaves that are healing the nations. There's no more death or dying or crying or pain, right? God's with His people. That's the last two chapters. So why does John include in each letter a reference to that dramatic conclusion? Well, it's because the conclusion is for the churches. Right? The church is not a distraction from the epic things that God is doing. The church is the reason God is doing it. When God brings His victorious kingdom on earth, He brings it through His church. When He sends His Son to die on the cross, He does it to save His church. Why is the Lamb slain? Why does heaven come to earth? Why does God battle the forces of evil and death? It's for His church. It's for His church. He does it for His church. See, John, John is doing for the church what he did with Jesus last time. He's pulling back that curtain, remember? Uh, Revelation, right? He's showing us what is so hard to see in this life. He's showing us the church from God's perspective. Not just a community of spiritual mediocrity, but, but he's showing us that it can be a community that's dressed in white, that's given the crown of life, that's made a pillar in the temple of God, that is made to sit with Christ on his throne. I mean, I, I get, I get that church can seem boring and that, and that we aren't always super exciting and, and what we do here doesn't always make your heart race. Okay? But the community of Christ's church, even this church, is a community that is destined for greatness. I mean, I get that you need eyes of faith to see it, but the Lamb was slain for us. I mean, Christ battles the forces of evil for us. God brings His kingdom to earth for us, right? You'd think, you think He didn't know. You think He didn't know what a hodgepodge kind of mixed bag group that we'd be? Of course He did! I think, frankly, it's part of what makes it even more beautiful. Like Christianity is unique among religions in that its followers are not to be defined by how good or, or moral or interesting or passionate we are. That's not what makes us like, good enough. That's not why God sticks with us. We don't, need to be, we don't need to pretend to be better or more interesting than everybody else. We don't have to live up to that pressure. That's not what makes the church special to God. Christ makes the church special to God. I mean, your church, our church, may not look like much to you. But in this mixed bag community, Christ sees his bride. And he's head over heels. I mean, he will literally move heaven and earth. He will battle to the death. He will lay down his life, whatever it takes, to win this community for himself. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this community as you see it. Um, alive, able to overcome. A community that, that has in it the capacity to, to reign on the throne next to you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to repent and turn from that which prevents us from being the community that you desire us to be. Um, but that you would also just teach us to put our trust and our hope in your Son, Jesus Christ.
Um, He is the one who has conquered. He is the one who has overcome. And Lord, when we put our faith in him, we know that, that we will overcome too. And so we hold on to that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.